I'm Kurt Benkert, and this is Pocket Presence, powered by Sleeper. Welcome back to another episode of Pocket Presence. I am your host, Kurt, and this is your co-host, Tyler. What's up, Tyler? Merry late Christmas. Merry late Christmas. What a slate of football we had. Capped off with the game. I think we all thought it was going to be a little bit better, but I'm excited to get into it all because we are barreling towards the end of the season here, and there are still a lot of things that need to play out. It is getting crazy, and I don't even know. I mean, the Raiders game was nuts. Two defensive touchdowns. We just we just had so much ball, and to have the blessing, the Christmas blessing of getting ball on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, full slates, and for them to play out how they did, it was really good. It was it was a great great Christmas weekend. It was awesome, and I want to work with that last game first, and we can work backwards from there. There was a lot of yeah. talk coming into this week about who the MVP should be. We were hearing. Brock Purdy, we were hearing Tyree Kill, Dak Prescott, uh, even CMC was thrown in there. And I think coming out of Monday, at least, we have a clearer picture of who that could look like. You joked on Twitter that your MVP is Joe Flacco. He's been playing great, and we'll talk about (laughs) that. But it looks like Lamar is now in a prime position to take home MVP. He's the quarterback of a number one seed in the AFC. Uh, What do you make of this whole debate now that we've had a weekend of football play out? Yeah, this was the biggest weekend to shake things up. I think Lamar has been playing statistically not at an MVP level, but he is doing everything that an MVP should for their team. And I think it was basically Brock Purdy's to lose statistically. And if he had one week that was he was going to mess it up stats-wise, then he was out of the race. And I think that's, that's happened. It's over. Um, but yeah, I think at this point, you look at it and it's it's Lamar Jackson unless something crazy happens maybe a Josh Allen sneaking up like third, fourth place, but it's Lamar, Christian McCaffrey, Tyreek Hill, in my opinion, one of those three. And it would have to be Lamar getting hurt or doing some crazy stuff to lose it at this point in time. Yeah. It's funny how the narrative works. I mean, Lamar is not even top 10 in touchdowns right now, but just the fact that he's going to be the quarterback on the presumptive number one seed means that he wins MVP. It also seems like to me that if there's any year where a non-quarterback should win the award, it should be this year because there's not a guy that's dominating. But it just seems like the more I hear the dialogue around this, the more I'm just convinced it's never going to happen, that a running back wide receiver could ever win this award. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they could. I mean, you would at this point in time, you'd have to have Lamar get hurt. You'd have to have Brock Purdy probably get hurt. And then you'd have to have Josh Allen like shit the bed. Like those are the only three right now that are, in my opinion, up for grabs at the quarterback position in there. But you have a year where I don't know. There's been like five to ten like tier one quarterbacks that are injured out for the year. So if there's any year, it's this year. But I still think it's going to be a tough sledding. Yeah, let's talk about the game for a bit. So we saw the Ravens really hand it to the 49ers. What do you make of this performance for each team? We can first talk about the Ravens. I think a lot of people are excited about what their prospects mean going forward, but how do you break down this performance for Baltimore? Yeah, this was this was electric. So the the Ravens gave a blueprint defensively of how to stop this Shanahan tree or how to slow it down anyways, because they still scored points. But uh, I think it was Baldy that I saw on Twitter. He talked about how the Ravens run a match zone defense. And so like a match zone defense carries guys, they carry receivers, but they have zone principles and they spot drop. And the other part is the defenders always have their eyes to the quarterback. That's why they had so many interceptions off of tips because everyone is reacting to the quarterback's movement, reacting to his eyes. So they're very ball aware. And the best teams in the NFL, tips and overthrows, always say, got to get those. Like they're very ball aware. And the Ravens having their eyes on the quarterback, not flipping their hips and turning and getting their eyes away from them at all points in their defensive scheme zone-wise it allows for them to never miss those opportunities when a ball is just tipped and floated in the air. Because if you look back at the tape, Brock threw, what, four interceptions and Sam Darnold threw one? Brock's interceptions, one of them was his fault. One of them was half his fault. The other two were tips. And, like, so how many times do you see a tip pass just not get intercepted in the NFL because guys aren't around it? Well, the Ravens, the way that they play defense with their shell and their, their zone eyes, like, they are around the ball and they're flying to it. And I think over the next few years, you're going to see teams try to replicate that. Flip it over to the 49ers now. I think you could make the argument that it's just one of those days when two teams go up against each other. Something's got to give and somebody's got to yep. win. And in this case, it happened to be the Ravens. But I think a lot of people are pointing out that Brock Purdy gets some of these easy throws taken away. He doesn't look so good. Is this a case of just two good teams matching up, Kurt? Or are the 49ers in trouble after this game? 
The 49ers are not in trouble. So they play the Commanders this week. And if there's ever a team to get back on track against, it's Commanders and Ron Rivera, Riverboat Ron. He's ready. What you really had to look at was, look, they were moving the ball. They were outpacing the Ravens all up and down the field. And then Brock threw that interception of Debo in the end zone. So again, safety reacted to his eyes, fell off of it. Debo didn't see the safety, didn't cut it flat enough. Brock threw it with trust. And maybe he shouldn't have thrown it because it would have been tight anyways, regardless of if Debo crossed face. So like that changed the course of the game. But at that point, he had what, like 80 yards passing. Kittle was almost over. I think he was over 50 yards receiving. Like they were rolling in it. They were in stride. And it just kind of felt like they started pressing too soon and trying to make up for it where I think they should have stuck to their scheme a little bit more, try to run the ball a little bit more because McCaffrey was getting open holes. I just think they they started passing and trying to do too many shifts and motions to create an explosive play when they really didn't need it because the Ravens were giving up like gimmies, but then they'd attack and they'd have a turnover off of a tip. So the, the 49ers, in my opinion, they were forcing too much and the Ravens capitalized. A stat that I, I do want to highlight this is from our friend Jack Settleman. He mentioned that Kyle Shanahan is 0 37 with an eight plus point at an eight plus point deficit entering the fourth quarter. Of course, that was the deficit that the 49ers had entering the fourth quarter against the Ravens. They ended up losing, so make that 0 38. Is there any concern that this team, this 49ers team, is not meant to play from behind? So I don't even know if it's a concern as much as it, it's just a fact. They don't prepare for it, they don't like game and schematically like game wise schematically they don't they're not ready for it so when i was there with the 49ers most of the practice time was spent on like the script and the game plan like the core of the game plan a little bit of time spent on no huddle like very little and there wasn't even like a two-minute meeting so when i was with the packers we had two-minute drill meetings it was like we knew the breakdown we knew everything they don't really practice two minute because of the their philosophy is the amount of time that you actually get to spend in a two minute drill over the course of the season. It's not worth the time wasted. That's their like kind of philosophy for it. So they're like aware of it. They have their plan, but it's not like where they put a lot of their money into or their time. And I think in games like these, that's why it looks uncomfortable because how often do you see the 49ers play from behind, like over two scores, like really never. And so for them, they look at it as all year, like we don't really get in those situations. Why are we going to practice them all the time? At least that's kind of what I got while I was there. But yeah, they they huddle every play. They read off of a wristband every single play. So like there's not often times that Kyle Shanahan's just saying like, hey, get on the ball, run this play and calling the play out in the headset. He's normally calling wristband 87 and then Brock huddles and reads it off. So like, I don't know. I think it's something they should practice more, obviously, but in their defense they're not in those situations often but i'd say in the biggest games you're going to be in those situations i agree especially as you get further along the season these games get a whole hell of a lot closer you're doing a bit of agenda pushing over the weekend kurt comparing brock purdy to drew Brees, which caused quite a stir online oh yeah death threats all of it yeah i saw that the same weekend you decided to make the stand was the first weekend of the year that brock purdy had a really awful weekend so there's a lot of ammunition for people to come at you with you know, talk us through this comparison, Drew Brees and Brock Purdy, and even how you take that into consideration given a, a subpar performance by Brock this weekend. Yeah. So Brock, if you look at him just like his best plays and even his worst plays, like what is he what's his game like play style? He's an accurate passer. He throws with good timing. He's typically a great decision maker. And then after the first play is over, like they call it the first play, whatever's in rhythm, that second play he can create. He can scramble, he can run it himself, or he can run it and throw on the run and create plays. So, like, that's like Brock Purdy. You look at Drew, Drew was decision making, timing, accuracy, ball placement, like beating with ball location for Drew Brees down the seams and the back shoulder. Like, that was his thing. And he was always going to be on time. And he was one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the world, right? But if you look at Drew Brees' first five years or so when he was in San Diego, nobody would have looked at Drew Brees like they do today. It took him 20 years to get to that point. I don't even know how long he played in the NFL, but it took him a really long time to get to that point. If he had just been done playing after those first five years, people would never have talked about him again, right? Like it's it's one of those things. Brock Purdy is playing at, an, at a near MVP level in his first two seasons in the league. And yes, he has a great offense and a great coach. But Drew Brees, what did they talk about? Sean Payton and that offense, like their vertical attack offense, their check downs of the running backs, like... He had a good offense. He had the best running back in the NFL at the time, in my opinion. Alvin Kamara, in his prime, was the most explosive back in the league. 
in the run and in the pass. Like he was able to combine both. So he was a true weapon, right? Like he had weapons. And this narrative that Drew Brees did not have weapons, I don't care what anybody says. Marcus Colston was a dog. Like he was going up to get it. So just because Drew Brees didn't have a Calvin Johnson or whatever, like I just, I don't like those narratives at all. I think if you look at the full body of work, Brock has thrown for a lot of yards, a lot of touchdowns, very few interceptions, and he's won a lot of games. So it has not looked like that for the 49ers before. They haven't had a stretch like this where they've been this dominant and this good. Now with Jimmy Garoppolo, they've been solid, but last year with Jimmy G, they were four and four to start the season, I believe. Like that's same team. Yes, they went out at Chris McCaffrey, but um, my whole comparison with them is, look, it's been a year and a half of Brock. He's playing better than any quarterback has ever played in his first, what, like 18-plus games. Cut him some slack. It's a comparison. I'm not deeming him the greatest of all time, not deeming him the most accurate passer. But just like the NFL draft, what do you do? You give players comps. And my comp for him is Drew Brees. Just He's more athletic. I feel like part of that apprehension to make the comparison is that the 49ers are historically a really good franchise. You know, Kyle Shanahan's a great coach. They always seem Mm -hmm. to have great skill position players and a great defense. And it almost seems unfair that they could, with the last pick of the draft, select a quarterback that's playing at an MVP caliber. Whereas many people listening may forget the Saints were one of the biggest poverty franchises before Drew Brees got there coming out of Hurricane Katrina, which decimated the area. And Drew Brees was sort of this savior figure. In, in New Orleans. And so he's definitely put easier, on a pedestal. Yeah. It's an easier story to root for than, oh, the 49ers who have this great history, have had a great coach, great skill position players, and now luck into an MVP level quarterback with the last pick of the draft. It, I think it's just, uh, it's easier to hate on the 49ers for, uh, for that kind of comparison. Dude, I, I totally agree. And look, like Drew was amazing. At the end of the day, Drew won one Super Bowl. Brock Purdy is still on his way to maybe winning a Super Bowl this year. Who knows? Like They still have one of the best teams, and he's in year two. He went to the NFC Championship game last year, and he was the fourth-string quarterback starting the season. Like, nobody, like, that's the thing. Nobody can believe it, right? Like, he was, the, he was behind Trey Lance, Jimmy Garoppolo, and Nate Sudfeld on the roster. He was the last guy. Trey, they signed him, or they started Trey. Then they signed Jimmy back to a long deal, then traded Nate Sudfeld. So that's how it shook up to three. Then Trey got hurt. Then Jimmy got hurt. And like Brock Purdy should not have been playing. But also, Brock Purdy wouldn't have been the last pick of the draft if he was 6'3. That's just, it is what it is because his play style and what he did in college, he's a good player. He's an accurate passer. So I just think, like, one second. There we go. I just think the whole narrative around it, like, good look, if this was the NFL draft and I was talking about Brock Purdy and comping him to Drew Brees, I wouldn't be getting death threats. But because it's in season, their team sucks. You know, like it's yeah, and that's the other thing I want to talk about too. How how long has the NFC South been just pretty bad? Like, like they've been the AFC South and the NFC South have been poor for a long time. Like Yes, Matt Ryan had some years. Yes, Cam Newton had some years. But when Drew Brees was when Drew Brees was playing, they were just rolling that division, just like Tom Brady was rolling that division up north or the AFC East. Like, let's just this isn't the AFC West and this isn't the AFC North we're talking about. It's the NFC South. So take it with a grain of salt. I love it. Well, let's move on to a quarterback that there really seems to be no debate around right now. Joe Flacco is playing yeah. absolutely out of his mind. You know, you know what to say. I mean, there is just something about Flacco sitting in that pocket, slinging it. He, he looks like vintage Flacco, to be honest. He with does. Last dude. weekend had 368 yards, three touchdowns, two ints, but that's all a part of vintage Flacco. And then you have Amari Cooper putting on a, a fantasy football masterclass with 265 through the air, two touchdowns. Talk me through what you're seeing about Joe Flacco first. I mean, he's playing some of the best football of his life, fresh off the couch, like a month ago. Fresh off the couch. Joe Flacco giving us couch couch dwellers just hope out here. But no, what Joe's been able to do, look, his last four weeks, 368 yards, 374 yards, 311 yards, 254 yards. It's crazy. He's had two, three, two, three touchdowns. And yes, he had a couple picks here and there. But again, it's the Joe Flacco experience, right? Like a, an interception is not as bad as a touch, is not as bad as a touchdown is good. That's how fantasy works. That's how real life works. Like interceptions don't guarantee points. What Joe's been able to do, though, man, on third and fourth downs, critical situations, tight coverage, he's been able to put the ball on a rope and exactly where it needs to go with people draped around his legs. That 
looked to me, I, I thought I was watching Ben Roethlisberger in his prime this last week. Just dudes on his back, dudes falling down like all over him and just delivering time and time again. And he has a, a receiver in Amari Cooper that he fully can trust to like, look, if he throws it up, it's probably not going to be intercepted, most likely going to be caught. If not, it's going to be P.I. Those are some really good outcomes for throw balls. And he has a guy that he can trust to do that. Plus, he has Njoku, who's balling right now, probably playing tight end better than anybody else in the league at this point in time, especially in the red zone. They have a sneaky, good formula for success with one of the top defenses in the league. And Joe knows that too, so he can be a little riskier in his throws, knowing his defense has his back. The Browns are one of my... Dude, they're, they're like my sneaky playoff team right now. Them and the Bills, I would not want to have to play them if I was any of these top teams. Chiefs, can I'm you looking walk at us you. <laughs> can you walk us through what it's like for Flacco to literally come off the couch? Like He's not playing, and now he's playing really good football. What is his... How's he staying ready? Is he staying ready? Because we, we joke, like he, he comes from the couch. He's obviously still training yeah. and still preparing and hoping for a call. But what is he doing to make sure that when he gets that call, he's in full form because it's been so impressive. Yeah, he's he's probably working out, you know, three to five times a week, depending on what his schedule looks like. He's throwing for sure two times a week, most likely. A guy like him, maybe one time a week because his arm is he's got a special arm. He's, he's got a he's got a hose, but. I would say throwing enough so that you don't like have a tight arm come day one, two, three of practice because going from nothing to practice, man, like you're going to be so sore that first week. Um, but yeah, I think he's he's doing just enough while also being a dad. My dog's hanging out in the background. He's doing enough while also being a dad. Like I know he's got like family life. So it's, it's this balance of like, am I going to get a call? Am I not going to get a call? But I feel like as soon as you go into a situation, as soon as you step into that building, that switch goes off, dude. And like, it's just time for football. And especially when you've been doing it for as long as he does, it's muscle memory at that point. Um, yeah, I think he was ready for this situation, obviously. Is there anything that Joe Flacco is doing as compared to another quarterback that you might bring in? This has been the year of the replacement backup quarterback. And it seems like we mm -hmm. have, we see a lot of guys come in hot, flash in the pan. You know, I'm thinking about guys like Josh Dobbs, and then they kind of fizzle out. And in the case of Josh yeah. Jobs, moved down to third in the depth chart. So is there something here that Flacco is doing that might help him sustain the success to the playoffs? Or are we going to see another hot flash fizzle out from Flacco as well? Yeah, I don't think there's going to be hot flash fizzle out. Um, I think, honestly, it's the team around him. So like Dobbs went into a situation where his team was decimated. No Justin Jefferson. Like a lot of guys were hurt. Not a whole lot going on that looked good at that point in time. And he was just a spark for them. But then they kind of regressed back to the means and he wasn't able to keep it up and able to elevate everybody else around him as much as he had in the first few weeks. Then you look at Flacco. Flacco goes into a situation where it's like, look, just kind of do your job. You don't have to be a superhero. Don't mess it up because we have a stud defense. We have a good run game and a few good pass catchers downfield. Like we don't need you to be a superhero. But the fact that he is playing like a superhero and it's going well, he's elevating them past this like wildcard team, in my opinion. They're what they're they're fighting for the number one seat at this point. If the Ravens lose a game here, and that's the thing is like Flacco would have them as a good wild card team. Elite Flacco has them at a, as a contender, and they look nasty. I completely agree. Talk to me a little bit about Amari Cooper's performance. When a guy is playing this well, you know, eleven receptions, over two hundred fifty yards, two touchdowns. Are you just talking about in the huddle like, hey, just get this guy the ball, or was this more of a? just happened to work out maybe there was a, a soft spot in the defense that they were exploiting or is it like this guy's just having an incredible game we just got to give him the ball any way we can yeah i think when you know when a guy's on fire that like whatever you can do to give him a chance you can't because like decision making as a quarterback there are some games where you know like look maybe i'll try to fit in that 50 50 ball because that's it's one of those days but sometimes it's not one of those days and it turns into a three four five interception game and you're like, all right, maybe that wasn't the day to do it. But you start feeling the game. And and Flacco obviously has an incredible feel for the situations, what's going on, and like his nuances and how he's playing the game right now are just showing. It's like all the things that they talked about in my quarterback rooms over the year of like little tips and tricks. Like I'm watching him do it live in game. And he hasn't done it in a while. And it's just like it's second nature to him. And he's able to he's able to let those things show because he's playing on a good team finally. Like when's the last time Flacco's been on a good team? It's been a long time. Like it's so again, that just goes to show you like everyone wrote off Flacco over the, these last few years, but how many quarterbacks are being written off right now just because their teams suck or their coaches suck or like they aren't having good game plans being called. Like 
Flacco is a great example of, hey, maybe it is the coaching or the situation they're in, not so much the player, because he's, what, 38 or something like that? He's, he's in his upper yep. 30s, I believe, and he's playing the best ball of his life. And what does he have? A great support staff, great game plan being called, and he's having fun, which winning is fun. And quarterbacks play better when they're having fun. Look at Josh Allen. I completely agree. It, it's That seems to play through on the field that you see Joe Flacco – He's beaming in the locker room every every chance he gets. Yeah, and especially when you come from the Jets. I saw a quote from Robert Sala, who's just kind of talking about his his joy for the game. I'm sure when you can when that's your last comparison, it's easy to have fun playing winning football. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about I, another. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say I completely agree. Like having football, having fun playing football is like you can just tell when teams are having fun. The Ravens look like they're having fun. I completely agree. It's fun to watch them. Okay, let's move on to another wide receiver who decides to be good once every couple times a season. Gabe Davis going for 130 uh, and a touchdown. It's funny. I, I think about this from a fantasy perspective. In a, you know, Gabe Davis, you're never going to start him. This is, the, this is the fantasy football semifinals this week. You're never yeah. going to start Gabe Davis, but it really bites when you have him on your bench. He puts up that performance, similar to Amari Cooper. I, unless you're yeah. in maybe a 12, 16-team league, like, there's probably a deep enough stack at wide receiver at this point where you didn't have to start Amari if you didn't want to, but seeing that 45, 50 pointer on your bench is brutal. Yeah. It's got a sting. It's like, it's tough because those types of teams, like you would think Stefan Diggs, and even the last few weeks we started, we talked about a little bit last week. If guys aren't getting their targets, no matter what their name is, you can't start them. Look at Devontae Adams, completely crushing fantasy players, hopes and dreams this week. Stephon Diggs nearly doing it as well. And then you, like, the team that I'm playing against in the, by the way, in the fantasy football championship in my league, um, mm. this is his roster. Geno Smith, Tyler Lockett, Logan Thomas, Alvin Kamara, James Conner. Like, those are some of the players in his starting lineup. And I'm like, how did That's he hideous. get there? Like, how did he get there? And meanwhile, like I have Tyree Kill, Keenan Allen, like Nico Collins, Matt Stafford, and like it's, but again, it's one of those years. And I feel like we say it every year, it's one of those years, but this year for real, like you don't know what's going to happen each week and you got to play the hot hand regardless of what their name is. I think a lot of people are just kicking themselves. Uh, a lot of really funny, uh, content coming from sleeper accounts specifically of like what it was like to have T Higgins all year and then finally see him go off or what it was like to have Gabe yep. Davis or you know Amari Cooper all year and then finally see them go off it's like you guys did this about four weeks too late for you to be any any good for my fantasy team 100 percent. all right we have to talk about Joe Barry how he is still employed oh, I'll, I'll start you know I'll turn my Packer hat forward for this one because please do you watch you you watch the Packers play a two-win Carolina team. Bryce Young looks so good, like the number one pick they draft him to be. And then you look back at all of the quarterbacks that have had their best games of the season against a Joe Barry-led defense, and you just have to think about how this man has a job. You even go back to Joe Barry earlier in Joe Barry's career. He's he's the defensive coordinator for the 0-16 Detroit Lions. It seems like every point along the way, there's disqualifications, disqualifications for why this man has a job, yet... You've talked about it, Kurt. The good old boy club of the of the NFL means that he gets to stick around and have a job, and there seems to be no accountability for the players who, at this point, are openly calling him out in the media or at least subtweeting him when they're talking to reporters. And there yeah. just seems to be mutiny afoot. I don't know how he ha- still has a job. I've, I've never seen fans so united against somebody. It, to be fair, it does seem like in Green Bay, the defensive coordinator is always the most hated person in the building, but... This year more than well, ever. When your offense, like DVOA, right? Like, look at the Packers offense. Matt LaFleur has done a hell of a job turning around this offense this season. Earlier in the year, it sucked. He made some adjustments, started switching things around, started using different shifts, motions, different play calls, like giving easier outlets. And they're rolling right now. And the only thing holding back this team is a defense and really the defensive scheme with a lot of playmakers on that defense. But the thing is, is they're making it so easy on quarterbacks to get easy completions, to get yak, just based off of alignment, like just pre-snap. Pre-snap, these guys are not in positions to be successful more often than not. And that's the problem. You should not have Baker Mayfield, Tommy DeVito. Tommy DeVito just got benched, damn it. Tommy DeVito just got benched, and he was NFC Player of the Week against 
a Joe Barry led defense. And this is not a personal attack on Joe Barry, but he should never have been the defensive coordinator in the first place. Stop giving unqualified people jobs. He is a hell of a defensive linebacker coach. He's a hell of a linebacker coach and he's a good teacher of the game. Does not mean he should be calling plays. And that's, that's the, like the long and short of it. Stop giving people roles just because, especially when they're not qualified, like let him do what he's good at and keep him there. That's that. Because right now they're the only thing holding back this Packers team. Like they should not have to worry about losing a game when they put up 33, when they're playing the worst team in the league. Like, when has Bryce Young ever looked so good? We knew we literally joked about it pregame. Up oh, here's Bryce Young's coming out party, and what do you know? It's Bryce Young's coming out party. Like, and this week, literally. Nick Mullins might throw for 400 yards. And I swear to God, if Nick Mullins throws for 400 yards, there's going to be real mutiny because Nick Mullins has had like eight or nine interceptable balls in the last two weeks, plus three fumbles. Like, they should feast in this game. And the only reason that. I really don't think they will is because of how they're lining up pre-snap, which comes down to your play caller. We talked about all that before. <laughs> we talked about all that before. I think as a Packer fan growing up, you always talk about how there's a huge investment in the offensive side of the ball. A team, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, Kurt. It seems like yeah. a real offensive leaning culture, you know, from Holmgren to McCarthy to LaFleur, they've focused on offense. And then it seems like they just kind of, use whatever's left to spend on defense. And I saw a lot of really interesting stats come out because there were conversations this weekend about... Look at where the money's actually went on this team. Right, exactly. And so to credit Wendell Ferreira on Twitter for this, cash spending on offense, the Packers rank 32nd. And a lot of that is dead cap against Aaron Rodgers. And so they've had to scramble with a really young core of guys who have turned out really well and have returned with a, a DVOA of 10th in the league. So the spending to return to that spending is really good. Meanwhile, the Packers spend the sixth most on defense, more than teams like the Ravens, we just see put a master class against Kyle Shanahan, and their DVOA is 30th. And so that yep. seems to me to come down to a, a coaching issue and not a talent on the field issue. Yep. No, that's 100%. And that's like, that's the narrative all along. And look, the even more impressive part is that what the Packers are sixth on the year, or you said 10th in the year on offense? Yes. 10th? Yes to both. Exactly. So, that is also with a super long skid early in the year. Like they sucked on offense early. Like really, they were not good. The defense was the only reason they were staying in games. But like conversely to that, when the offense starts playing well and then the opposing offense has to start trying to put on more points instead of milking the clock out to win games, Joe Barry was exposed. And like it's it's just tough that look, LaFleur has done a hell of a job as an offensive coach this year in the last half. But he also has an obligation as a head coach to make sure that all the parts of the ship, all the moving pieces are accountable. And I think that's where it's been lacking right now is there is a clear deficiency. There's a clear problem when you look at amount spent to DVOA and you have not addressed it. And that is literally my number one problem with what they have going on right now is where's the accountability? Because you hold players accountable. You'll cut, trade, do whatever, see ya. But like you're going to let that hang on and that be the reason why you're not going to be one of the wildcard teams this year. Like you cannot have this two lane street where it goes. Yeah. Our way with the coaches, like we're going to do our thing, but the players out, out, out. Like that's just, it sends a really bad message to the locker room. I can totally see that. I mean, even from a fan perspective, it's like you, it's one of those instances where everybody seems to know what the problem is, but there's some refusal to admit it inside the building of what the actual yeah. problem is. And Matt LaFleur is going on the podium and, taking blame because the offense that, you know, it's like, it's like, dude, only, only listen, thing, you're not an offensive coordinator. Like you're the head coach. Like if you're an offensive coordinator and your defense sucks, shit, I did my job. They just couldn't hold them. Like that's literally what it is. You're the offensive coordinator and head coach. So like, you know what I mean? Like just do something, do something. <laughs> Yeah, well, the Packers are going to have to win a couple games here down the stretch and get some help if they want to make yeah. the playoffs. But even going into the playoffs, I mean, who can they stop? They can't stop Bryce Young and the Carolina Panthers. So Jordan Love yeah. might have it's to It's not even worth it. 40. Yeah, it's like at that point, you're just prolonging the inevitable. And Joe Barry maybe doesn't even get fired if they if they make the playoffs. So we'll see. We talked about <laughs> it this last week. I mean, there, there was no winning for Joe Barry coming out of this game, but it seems like the worst possible thing happened for him, which is they had a horrible defensive performance. Like we, we said, even if they held yeah. the Panthers to one touchdown. It was like, okay, it's the Carolina Panthers. Like, good for you. But they couldn't even do that. Let him put up 30, have you know Bryce Young have his best game of the year. 
And it was one second away from, I mean, the Packers could have lost that game if there was any literally the clock. Crazy. Frustrating. All right. Well, we can talk about a couple of good teams now. I'll turn my Packer hat back the other way. Flip the that Dolphins. Out of <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the Dolphins finally love beat that. a good team. And the Cowboys still cannot beat a team outside over 500, something that you called out earlier this season, Kurt. It seems to me, you know, the, the, the Cowboys now have an uphill battle to win that NFC East, meaning that they're probably not going to be able to host a playoff game unless it comes down to a, a team yeah. uh, lower than them uh, winning and, and beating a higher seed team. So does this mean that the Cowboys are going to be one and done in the playoffs again? Because they, you're right, they cannot play a team, dude, a good team outside. It kind of feels like it. And the biggest thing that I'm seeing with them, dude, is it comes down to their red zone execution. They're, I need to go look up some stats on their red zone execution, but like fumbling the ball in the one yard line, having multiple trips down there, ending with field goals, like just not coming away with touchdowns. When you have that type of offense with those guys on that team, it's inexcusable. There's no reason that the Dallas Cowboys with Ferguson, CeeDee Lamb, Tony Pollard, shit, even Dowdle, and Dak Prescott, obviously, they should not have a problem finding touchdowns in the red zone. But every single week, it's like that's the recurring theme. And I almost feel like is McCarthy is McCarthy just like outsmarting himself? Like I I don't know what it is, but you look at the first Eagles game that they played against them in uh Philly, they had like three trips down there where they just could not punch it in. They were inside the eight, inside the five, whatever. Like they just can't do it. And they need to either be more creative, they need to they need to find solutions in the red zone. And I don't know what they are right now because it's not my team. It's tough to see. Like they have to come up with either different sets, different motions. You need to look at what the Dolphins did earlier in the year with how they use their like quick motions back and forth, quick stick routes, speed breaks, like a lot of misdirection because those are the types of teams that had success in the low red zone and just go copy them, dude. Like just go stop trying to come up with your own stuff. Just go copy some teams that do a good job of getting guys open down there and you'll be a little bit better. Is there, you know, and you've played outside, Kurt, you've played in Lambeau Field before, which gets really cold. This is becoming a clear trend where they struggle playing good teams outside. Yeah. And albeit playing in Miami in December, it's not terribly cold. It's not like playing in Lambeau, obviously, but there does seem to be some difference maybe in natural grass versus turf. Like, what are you identifying the root cause of this trend? Is it a mental thing? Is there actually something tactical here that they can't do as well when they play outside? Yeah. You know, I think, I think they spend so much time on turf with their games i know they have like an indoor and stuff i don't know they probably practice on grass it's probably super light like that's the other thing there's different types of grass like in green bay the grass was a little bit thicker in like down south the grass is like baseball field like thin and so when you spend months practicing on a certain uh surface like your timing especially in a west coast system like that your timing on out routes your timing on inbreakers like your timing in general matters so much where your timing is going to be slightly different on grass, especially if it's longer grass than it would be on turf. And like, that's the only thing that I can think of. Cause I'm like, even as a quarterback thinking about it, if I was to go on a field and throw an out route, like a long out, like far hash out route, three step plant, let it go. I'd probably put a little bit more air on it. If I'm on grass than if I'm on turf, knowing that like my receiver might need a fraction of a second to come out of it a little bit differently because his footing's going to be different. That like, might actually be what's going on for them in the little miscues. Like they're having little, little miscues when they're outside versus inside and the temperature controlled, like the way the ball is, the humidity, how dry it is outside, all of that stuff changes. And for a quarterback, it's just like a pitcher, like every little detail matters when you're throwing. So I don't know, that could be something. Especially as you get into these really close games against really good teams, that margin of error has to shrink. And so that yeah. those little timing things where you know the Cowboys have been prone to blowing out really bad teams this year, where that might not matter so much against a, a team that's not as good as you, against teams that are as good, you know that that stuff really yeah. kind of adds up, I imagine. Especially, and I think they had like one or two quarters of that game that were played in the rain. Like, how often has Dallas practiced wet ball drill or like anything like that? Like, they don't they don't get rain in Dallas like that. So like, even throughout the course of the year, they're not getting much practice at it. Exactly. We we talked last week about the narratives that would come out for each team based on this team. And we've now talked ex extensively about the Dallas can't beat yeah. a good team thing. The Dolphins, they've gone through quite an interesting narrative roller coaster this year where they come out and they score 70 against Denver and they're kind of the darling. And then you start to realize they struggle against good teams. And now they seem to be back on an upswing. And I don't know if it's just hard knocks, Kurt. They hard seem knocks, to be a baby. really likable team. 
It, yeah. Like even in just how Mike McDaniel's like takes accountability for things that clip went viral this week about how he walks through all the things that he did wrong in the game plan, but they just seem really easy to root for. And some of the media coming out also makes it seem to me like the accountability <laughs> they have in the building just sets them up for the, for the playoffs. So am I reading too much into that or should we be all in on the dolphins? And is some of that, like the hard knock stuff, is that, does that make an impact on on the field dude i like the dolphins i like their vibe like i'm a big vibe check guy i love the dolphins vibe i love it starts at the top down like mike mcdaniel is when you have a coach that's willing to like put himself at the stake before anybody else and let you know like this is what i effed up all right we got that out of the way now we can go into what you guys need to do better like that's how like he sets the stage prior to like digging into people and he also comes from a perspective of like look i don't know everything but i'm gonna figure it out and like, I don't know it now, but like, I'm going to work towards getting there. And like, he, I think being willing to accept that you don't know everything as a coach, like puts the players in like, ah, oh, like, like he's just going to keep busting his ass to do whatever he can to get us in the best place to be successful. And if he calls a bad play, shit, he's going to try better next time to get us in a better front, get us in a better formation, whatever. And I think that allows the players to like check that box out of their mind that like, look, I know he's doing everything, everything he can. So I'm going to do everything that I can. I'm not going to try to fix his problems because he's already working on them. Um, and I think just that accountability makes players want to play harder over the course of a season. Like those few extra steps when you run into the ball, there's a little bit of like extra burst when you're trying to block and dig out a safety as a receiver. Those things add up over the course of a year. Is that kind of a generational attitude that coaches have? Mike McDaniel has obviously become the poster boy for this young, new, innovative offensive coach. But I can't imagine that's how every old head is like in the, in the NFL. It is not, dude. It, that is the that is the furthest thing from what it most of the time is like. A lot of it is like this is the way it's always been done, or this is the way that we do it here, or like this is just how it is. So like, get in line, fall in line. Let's crash course to speed you up. Where like it looks like McDaniel is open to suggestions, especially from like his good players. And I think at the end of the day, like if you you as a coach rely on your players to play well to keep your job why would you not want to do what they're most comfortable with and feel most confident in? And like, you see that with a quarterback play a lot. Like the way that Mike McDaniel is calling plays for Tua is different than the way that some other coaches are calling plays with their quarterbacks. It's like he's adapting this offense around what Tua does well, whereas some other coaches in their schemes, they are just like, this is what we do. We got to get the right guy into this system to run our system where this system is being catered to Tua. So I think the best coaches do that and they adjust and, you look at like the Texans with CJ Stroud, like they've catered that system to CJ Stroud's strengths. You look at Purdy, like the way that Shanahan is calling plays over the course of the year is different than he was for Jimmy. It's like it's more catered towards Brock's skill set. So I think, and even now with Jordan, like LaFleur has changed this system to fit Jordan. If you look at how they're calling plays now in the season versus how they were at the beginning of the year, like I think beginning of the year is what LaFleur really wanted to do. And now it's like what LaFleur wants to do with Jordan. And it's working. And I just think coaches sometimes need a little bit of time, just like players do, to figure out what works best for that specific year. Sure. Onto a team trending in a completely different direction. The Chiefs are slipping at the wrong time. Some of my favorite, yeah. most ridiculous stats to come out of this weekend. The Raiders did not put up an offensive touchdown. They did not complete a pass outside of the first quarter and somehow still managed to win this game. What do the Chiefs have to do to get back on track? Man, they need a full overhaul of their heart. They looked like a broken team. They One, they got abused in the run game. Like what the Raiders were able to do on that last drive to seal the game, just straight at you, full speed. You're not going to tackle us. Like we're going to like we're gonna manhandle you up front. That's a bad look in your own home stadium. Like especially when you're supposed to be one of the best defense in the league. I think the Raiders outwilled them. I think the Chiefs are starting to point fingers. They also don't have like the explosiveness that they've been needing to overcome like long yarded situations. And I don't know, man, I think, I think they're done. I think they're going to be done this year. I think they're going to need to look towards the outside for a receiver, whether it's going to be in free agency, which there's a lot of good free agent receivers this year coming out and there's good receivers in the draft. I would not be shocked to see the chiefs like load up, load up with two to three this year and have a complete new receiving core. Is there somebody that you, think they should be targeting coming out of this free agent class yeah i think t higgins right now is number one on my list of guys that like he fits their kind of football like they like they need that across the middle like 
willing to do the dirty work, but can also line up outside and win one-on-one. And they need a speed guy. Like they need a true speed guy that can catch downfield consistently. Um, and I don't really know who that guy is just yet. Like maybe they'll be able to find one in the draft, but the draft is so hit or miss. And you like have to rely on these guys learning curves to catch up in time for the season. But I don't know. What are some other available like receivers right now? Do you know? Michael Pittman. I think Gabe Davis becomes available after this year. Um, so there's a couple, it's not a lot of true number one guys. It's guys yeah. that currently sit at number two, number three on the depth chart and would have to get thrust into a number one role, especially for a team like Kansas city. Like a guy like Mike Evans, I think it help with that consistency factor. Like he's going to obviously lock you in for a thousand yards a year, but imagine if they could get a guy like Mike Evans and T Higgins We're like, those are two, it's very much a one, a one B kind of situation, but they, they need that. And I think it's a disservice right now to not have that for Pat. This is one of my favorite parts of the NFL. We talk about the chiefs, write them off. They're still going to host a playoff game because they're still yeah. going to win their division. It's funny, especially when you talk about green Bay is a bad example, but you look, you look at a team like Chicago, who is just scraping and clawing for any semblance of hope that they could, yep. you know, play spoiler. And then meanwhile, you talk about the chiefs, like they're, the world is falling, the sky is falling, but they're still going to host a playoff game and yeah. hell, they, they could win something. Are we completely writing them off from making any noise in the playoff? Because at the same time that we say things aren't looking good, this could be the start to a Super Bowl DVD where you have, you know, Pat screaming, Travis throwing his helmet, and then all yep. of a sudden they're, they're raising the trophy for the third time in this, in this regime. I think anything's possible with them. Like they're a team that could just find a way. And especially if they get a home game, my only problem is like the two teams that right now it looks like they're going to have to play are either going to be the Bills or the Browns, I believe at this point. And holy shit. <laughs> like if I was the Chiefs, I would not want to have to play either of them. I don't even know like what AFC team right now in the wild card spot because the the wild thing right now is these wild card teams they're only wild card teams because they started the year bad. But like they're rolling right now. You look at then you look at the Jaguars and you're like, oh, they were so hot and they suck now. Like they might win their division, might not, who knows? But that's the the only team that I would want to be playing if I'm the Chiefs is the Jaguars at this point in time. Anybody else in the AFC that's gonna be in the playoffs, please know. It is true. This year, more than any year, it seems like those wildcard teams have almost an advantage because they, they're playing right good football at the right time. And it seems yeah. like at this in in the same regard you have the teams that are hosting playoff games that are slipping at the wrong time and so yep. it's really going to be an interesting test of like momentum versus i don't know being good earlier in the year totally december football january football man it doesn't get any better than this it does not talking about another team that might be in that slipping category although they won this last week the philadelphia eagles beat a tommy devito benching team uh, another Crazy. discredit to joe barry talking about joe how, barry uh, baby <laughs> it all comes back to Joe Barry. It was an ugly win oh, for the man. Eagles. Is this the game that got them back on track? They obviously had a gauntlet. You know, the end of the season works out to be a bit easier than, you know, that stretch where they had to play, uh, you know, the 49ers included. But what do you make of the of the Eagles now as, as they head into the playoffs? Yeah, I think the Eagles need to just get out of their own damn way. Like, they have good playmakers. Their offense is really tough to watch play because of how they call plays and how it's structured and like their lack of motion. But when they started feeding their best players late in that game, AJ Brown, DeAndre Swift, they were marching up and down the field and they showed that they had the ability to do it. And I think right now they just got to get the ball in their playmakers hands in space at whatever cost, like whether it's in the run game, screen game, pass game, scramble boot, I don't care. Find ways to get your guys open because AJ Brown and Swift should both have probably combined 30 to 40 touches in a game and there's no reason at least they shouldn't have targets in that range but to wait until the third or fourth quarter when you absolutely have to when you absolutely need it that's going to get you beat against a good team and they need to figure that part of it out right now how much does you called it overthinking with mike mccarthy earlier and i think it's especially true in philadelphia where you have so much pressure and maybe this is what the Chiefs fall into as well there, there's so much pressure from your fan base from your ownership from uh, management to be a Super Bowl contender every year those are the aspirations that the Chiefs have those are the aspirations that the Eagles have and it seems like you know Nick Sirianni is one of these guys who just overthinks things makes things complicated and they seem to be always perceived as 
you know, balancing in this like house of cards. Like if one thing goes wrong, it's fingers pointing, shit's hitting yeah. the fan and like the total season's off. And it, it seemed like the Eagles were trending that direction in the last <laughs> couple of games where they were where yeah. they were losing everything. And another team that's hilarious to me where they're the second seed right now in the NFC. They're probably going to win their division and they're they're in a great position to do so. And it seems like they are in the worst position they've been in the last three years. And you know, they've they're yeah. won they're gonna win twelve games this year. Like, what do you make of this outside pressure? And how does it actually play into, you know, coaching decisions or getting guys touches, like you said? Yeah, I think, man, I just, I look at Nick Sirianni and I'm like, dude, you just need to get some more sleep. Like, he just looks exhausted, worn out, like this season's like beating the shit out of him. And it looks like that every year. And Aaron Rodgers told me that the best thing you can do in this profession is have balance. Because if not, it will kill you. It will run you ragged and dry. And then you'll be worse at your job because you don't have balance. And I'm like... That was the first thought that I had when I saw him on the sideline. Like when he just looks distraught and lost, I'm like, man, you just need to like take a step back for a second. Like maybe on Tuesday, like go go out and get a burger somewhere. I don't know. He probably can't do that in Philly, but it just looks like to me, there's a lot of stress, like you're saying. And it's like they're not even doing crazy things to like they don't have like a Shanahan type playbook that they gotta study every week that like all these hundred plus plays, like it doesn't, obviously they don't have that. Cause you see what they do on offense. Like, I'm just like, I don't know, man. It just doesn't look like a well-oiled machine. And it, to them, it does seem like a house of cards. Like one thing goes wrong and you're not built to play from behind. And like your scheme isn't really, you know, up there with the upper echelon teams in the NFL. You're just kind of like moseying by, you do have a good record, but I don't know, man, it's, if they lose, like they could lose on a first round exit, and I wouldn't be shocked. I don't think anybody would be shocked because they're just not playing like as good a football as their roster would suggest. And I don't think it's the players holding them back at all. I think they have probably the best roster in the NFL. The lot of discourse around whether the brotherly shove, the tush push, should be banned. I don't think we've talked about it yet on the show, but it seems like this offseason there's going to be some thing to do with the tush push, whether they say this is allowed, maybe some aspects of it aren't allowed, or it's completely banned. What do you mm. think they should do with it? It's a play that's super successful for the Eagles, but to me, as the season goes on and other teams trying to replicate it and how infrequently they can seem to succeed doing it, it yeah. seems like the play should be legal and the Eagles just do it better, but I, I'm curious to hear your, your take. Yeah, my take is that they need to have rules around it. So I think the biggest rule coming at the offensive line cannot crowd the line of scrimmage like they do in that play. Um, if you look at a normal alignment for an offensive lineman versus their alignment on that play, um, they crowd the helmet of the center by at least a foot or two more than they typically do from what it looks like. So if you look at like down the line of scrimmage like this, like say this is like the center's head and this is where like the tackle and the guard and everybody normally is on that play, they're like here. And it's like, so you're telling me one is an offsides or one is an illegal formation. And like, there needs to be like a set alignment for offensive line and where they're allowed to be. And they should not be able to crowd that just because it's a tush push. And I think there's a super gray area there that they need to go to and get to the bottom of because of that, that's all the advantages you saw Kelsey, like move the ball and like pull it back a little bit to get leverage. He got called for that uh, two weeks ago, but there are nuances and like scientific nuances to that play of how they align that completely change the probability of the outcome. So I think they need to more so than like ban the tush push, create rules around the alignment of offensive line play that is going to be upheld. That's, that's smart. And that's probably what they'll do, right? The NFL has these points of emphasis that they, yeah, you know, enact every single year. And that seems like next year, that will just be one of those points of emphasis where you, you mentioned Kelsey moving the ball or the crowding of the offensive line. We'll just probably get a lot more annoying flags of like misalignment or offsides or false starts yep. that make the game go slower, but maybe reduce the probability of that and play being so automatic. Yeah, and it also might reduce the riskiness of or the willingness of people to call that play if they know like there's a chance here we lose five yards on like some illegal formation, like where look, there's a lot of creative ways to get one yard. And yes, that is the highest probability at this point in time, but I could definitely see that changing next year. Totally. Okay. So we have a, a bit of a double episode for listeners. Obviously, this week was Christmas. And so we finished recapping this last week. And now we're just gonna get into looking forward to this next week. Let's uh, do week it. Seventeen. Week 17 sounds a little weird. We grew up always thinking that this was the last week of football, but we get a little bonus week after that. And we start off with a Thursday night matchup between the Jets and the Browns. 
a bit of a snoozer. I would say the one interesting part that I will pull out from this game is if Joe Flacco and all the momentum that the Browns have can be spoiled by what has been a pretty stout Jets defense all year. I don't know what you think about that, Kurt, but maybe we could convince ourselves that this that this uh, Jets defense could hurt the momentum of the Browns, but curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think the Jets defense is hit or miss. Um, it depends on who they show up to be, and it depends on what the offense does because the Jets defense is good when they are able to feed off of the offense's momentum in the game, and then the other offense can start pressing. But if you get into a game where, like, look, the Browns are just rolling and the offense can't do anything and it's a lot of three and outs, that Jets defense gets tired just like any other defense. So it depends on, really, in my opinion, what is the Browns defense doing on the other side? Can they force a lot of three and outs? Then we're not going to have a problem with the Jets defense that game. But if it's going to be you know body blow for body blow and maybe some sustained drives from the Jets offense, then I think the Jets have a, a good formula there. So I'll, I'll let you know after the first quarter is over. I expect the Jets to win this game. I mean, Whoops. I expect the Browns to win this game pretty handedly, but I don't know. The NFL is weird, man. And I've been wrong just as much as anybody else in some of these weird matchup games. Totally. On, on to maybe a bit more compelling of a matchup. We have Detroit in Dallas, Saturday night primetime on ABC. What should we yeah. be watching out for? We get Dallas back home on turf, but this is an NFC playoff potential you know, matchup. Yeah, I, I have Dallas this game. They're at home. We know their record at home. We know how they feel at home. And more so than anything, you look at Detroit's defense, and they just gave up a lot of yards to the Vikings. They did turn, they did create some turnovers, but Dallas doesn't turn over the ball like that typically. And I don't think that they're going to be able to feast just how they have been. I think that Dallas is going to be able to pick apart the Lions' defense. Um, but if I'm wrong, then that just gives more case to the Lions' potential number one, number two seed. So... This game is just as big as any game last week, and I think this is going to be really telling of which who are these teams because right now the NFC, like you still say 49ers are top of the NFC, but there's like two, three, four spots. They could easily look like wildcard teams. So who knows? We'll find out soon. And this could be a really important game in the context of making it to the NFC Championship. You're kind of now parsing between potential two and three seeds. And so if you don't want to play the 49ers before you get to the NFC Championship, it's probably a good idea to win this game. And so you yeah. can have a clearer path and not have to meet them in the, in the divisional round. Yeah, yeah. No, it's you want to you want to push that off as long as possible. So both sides need this just as bad. I'd say so. New Year's Eve, we have another uh primetime night game on sunday we have the packers and the vikings i obviously exist heavily on packers twitter so i'm not sure yeah. about the vikings but with a little help this week from some other teams i think you know like the bears have to win and uh, the rams have to lose or something like that uh, the packers set themselves up for a win and in situation against chicago in week 18 and i'm assuming the vikings are in a similar position where if they win a couple other teams help them out they're in a win and in situation against detroit in week 18 so a lot of implications for this one you know, Joe Barry might have something to say about it, but what are your thoughts here? Dude, I just hope that I turn on this game and I see the Packers defense in one high pressing people and blitzing. Like I just, I want to have the Packers defense make Nick Mullins beat them with accurate throws versus man and pressure in his face. Like let, let's see if he can do that for four quarters because I promise you he will throw probably two to three picks and again, Justin Jefferson will make some good plays. He's Justin Jefferson. But the Lions last week, what they did to have success when they needed to, they were pressuring his ass. And they were bringing it from all over, and they were playing sticky defense, and they were seeing if he could be more accurate. And he was not consistently. And I just hope to God that Joe Barry does that because that gives them the best chance for success. Like, will you get beat on a go ball from time to time? Yeah. But you're not going to give them five straight plays of five to ten yards a pop on completions all the way up and down the field. And I'd rather have a quick death than a slow one. So give me it. Do you foresee Jordan Love and this Packers offense having any issue with Brian Flores? There's been a lot made about his ability to be really creative on the defensive side of the ball for the Vikings this year. And I'm just curious if the young quarterback might struggle with some of these new creative looks that he's been throwing out there. Yeah. Uh, Jordan's done a really, really good job of these past few weeks of recognizing protection issues, addressing them, fixing them, seeing where the pressure's coming from, and then playing his odds game of like, you know, 60-40 where they come in, sliding it. I think that, again, Flores creates problems for every quarterback, old, young, and different, and they're, he's going to get him sometimes, but that's just going to be a part of it. You're going to miss a block. You're going to 
miss a read, whatever, but you're going to play through it because more often than not, you're going to have a big play waiting on the other side of that. And I think as long as Jordan is patient with it and willing to accept that he's not going to get every single protection call right, the line's not going to block every play right, but over time, you're going to make more explosive plays and win the game that way. That's all that they have to do. I love it. Well, as a Packers fan, I like to hear that. And I like to hear a potential win and in situation. Although last year did not go too well for us, but I like our I odds against Chicago a little bit better than uh, a little bit better than Detroit. But regardless, the NFC South, the division that I think if it was up to any of us, we just wouldn't have a team make the playoffs from there. But we have to Man. we have to let it happen. And there's a there's a matchup down there between the Buccaneers and the Saints that probably has an implication of winner goes to the playoffs. What are you looking for in this game? Is there a team out of this division that you want to see in the playoffs? I know you seem to have a beef with just about every team in the NFC South at this point. So I don't know if there's, <laughs> I, if there's somebody you want to piss off here. No doubt. I, I think as of right now, I want to see the Bucks make it to the playoffs. Um, I would not mind seeing the Falcons, but I also just like wouldn't mind seeing Arthur Smith hit the road. Um, I think with this game specifically, Baker Mayfield's playing lights out right now. He's playing really, really good football, and their defense has been picking up this past month. You look at what they did to Trevor Lawrence last week. They made him look like he was a bottom 20 quarterback. And who comes into town this week? Derek Carr. Ready to be looking like a bottom 20 quarterback versus defense that's trending and offense is putting up points. I think this game is very heavily favored towards the side of the Broncos. Again, that is all with the consideration that Baker Mayfield has to take care of the football, and they can't do anything crazy that just – ruins the game for them but they should have the upper hand to win this game and they're the better team right now um the only thing that would scare me is if Derek Carr was replaced for Jameis Winston because man a Jameis Winston redemption game against the Bucks would be wild but I doubt it'll happen is there a chance that Todd Bowles keeps his job it seems likely if they make the playoffs you know they win this game they're at nine and seven yeah. they have a chance to win 10 games I don't think Todd Bowles excites anybody as a head coach but he's managed to will them to a over 500 record into the playoffs, it seems like yeah. he doesn't get fired. Yeah, I don't think he gets fired. I mean, at this point in time, like, especially for the state of the NFC South, like, it is theirs for the taking for the next few years if they can build around it and grow. Um, the Falcons, who knows? Like, the Falcons are one of those teams that they could be elite or they could have a new staff. Like, and it all depends on what are they, how are they going to address this ending of the season? The Panthers are in a rebuild for a little while and the Saints, like, Derek Carr is not going to be the long-term answer, so they're going to be looking for other answers outside. I think the Bucks have the most stable situation out of anyone, so I'd imagine he stays. All right. Moving on to the Bengals versus the Chiefs. A lot of people probably mm. circled this one in week one as an AFC championship preview, and now we Here get we a are. Chiefs team. We just talked about them. They're reeling. Jake Browning and the Bengals come off of a horrendous game against the Steelers of all teams. So, what shot. are you looking for here? Is this uh, maybe Jake Browning regresses to the mean and the Chiefs get back on track sort of game? Or is there a shot that the uh, the Bengals could still seek in the playoffs, right? I think, man, I actually think that the Chiefs win this game. I think that they rebound. I think with Jamar Chase most likely not playing, I believe, you saw the the Steelers able to take advantage of not having to double a guy and not having to like have more eyes on a guy that could just change the game. I don't think the Bengals have enough firepower right now to be able to consistently play against the Chiefs defense. Again, take away the two defensive touchdowns against the Raiders. The Chiefs defense balled out. Like they did, they have been stopping people. They've been one of the top defenses in the league. I don't think the the Bengals are going to be able to do enough to compete as long as Pat can have a few drives where he, you know, makes it get some points, moves it up and down the field. Like I'd love to see Kelsey do more, but I don't know. It just seems like something's off with them defensively. I don't know if the Bengals offense with the way they played last week have any of a better chance this week against the Chiefs defense. And then we wrap up the weekend, although it's not chronological at all with, with the Dolphins <laughs> and the Ravens. It's funny how these games yeah. work. You know, like you have the Packers and Vikings in primetime, two teams that might not make the playoffs. And then you have yep. the Dolphins and the Ravens who are the two top seeds in the AFC. And they're playing on a, a noon CBS game, right? So it's, yeah. it's funny how that all works out. But it seems like the, uh, the Dolphins are the underdog. And I imagine the betting odds reflect that. Do they have a chance against this Ravens team? Is there like a possible of a hangover against a really good team? It seems like the Ravens have just been playing a bunch of good football and a bunch of good teams, and that doesn't yeah. exist for them. But what do you think? I'm going to go with recency bias here and say that the Ravens probably handle the Dolphins, um, especially knowing like schematically what the Dolphins do is similar to what the 49ers do. Ravens had success against it, creating turnovers. Like 
this game comes down to Tua and how is he going to handle the pressure and how is he going to handle like not as wide open receivers as he's typically used to seeing because the Ravens have a good defensive line where they don't need to crowd the box to stop the run. So they have that extra defender typically in the pass game. Windows are tighter. Lanes are closer. Like what is Tua going to do? Is this going to be a Tua legacy game or is it going to be Tua like, ah, like need a new quarterback game? Like again, I don't know. I think the Ravens handle them. I think, Tyreek is the one changing factor because the 49ers don't have a Tyreek and you have to give Tyreek a different amount of respect than you do the other receivers around the league. So we'll see what their scheme comes out to look like, but I still like the Ravens. Is there any part of these games and maybe it's not so relevant for the 49ers and the Ravens because when they meet again, it would be in the Super Bowl. but for the Dolphins and the Ravens, they could meet much sooner in the playoffs. Is there a part here where, each team is holding back a little bit because they know that they're going to meet each other later on. Or is it this late in the season? You just want all cylinders firing and you're, you're going all out to, to win these games. I think you're, I think you're going all out because the seating matters more than anything. The last thing that anybody wants to do is have to go to Baltimore and play in the cold in a December game or in a January game against a team that thrives running the ball. Like nobody wants to have to do that because nobody wants to get Gus bust. So I think that they're going to let it all out there this week and they're going to dive deep in the bag of tricks to see if they can pull one over. Would not be shocked to see a Dolphins trick play this week. Throwing it out there. You heard it here first. Um, I think they're going to do everything they can to win. Kurt, let's wrap up this episode by maybe setting some people up for their fancy championships. You mentioned that you're in one yourself. Hey, now. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in one too. Are there any players that you're targeting looking at you know matchups that you're identifying that could be helpful yep. for people as they they hope to bring home a ring themselves this week 17 the defense you need to be looking to pick up right now the raiders defense they're playing against the colts the colts have struggled heavily and they struggled heavily last week against the falcons the raiders go to indianapolis but in the last three weeks they've had 15 26 and 23 points and if you know fantasy championships typically come down to the wire in every point in every position matters. This is the week that you need to be willing to drop your favorite defense and go get the Raiders and sell out. I think the Colts are going to have a tough time. I don't, is Michael Pittman playing? We don't know. Concussion protocol, probably going to be back, but he's got a neck injury. So like, that's kind of iffy. I think the Raiders defense is a defense right now that's willing to take chances in the pass game and they may give up some points, but they're going to create turnovers and turnovers and fantasy are worth more than giving up points. So I like the Raiders defense. So another sneaky pick this week is Riley Patterson. So he's on the Cleveland Browns practice squad. He's picked up as Dustin Hopkins kind of safety net um, as a kicker. He came from the Lions. But if you look at last week, the Browns put up a lot of points. And against a defense like the Jets, the Jets have a pretty decent red zone defense. You could see the Browns moving the ball a lot into red zone territory and having to kick field goals in a close kind of weird game. Riley Patterson could be the sneakiest, most dark horse pickup of a century to win you a fantasy league if you do not have a kicker that you feel good about, like his offensive, uh, of with how his offense does. So, not saying that Riley Patterson's a must start, but this is a guy that, like, coming down to kickoff, down to the wire, be very aware of the entirety of the kicking situation for them and for your team because he's somebody that I would stash my roster just to have if I didn't already have Justin Tucker, which I'm set, but not everybody else is. Another guy that I'm just going to be honest, I'm rolling with through the end of the season, thick or thin. Give me Matt Stafford, man. QB number 16 this year. He missed a few weeks, but in the last five weeks, he's had 24, 23, 23, 18, and 21 points. He's balling. He has not thrown an interception in the last four weeks. I hope he doesn't do it this week, but he's putting up a lot of fantasy points and his receivers are balling. I'm starting him over CJ Stroud, even if CJ Stroud comes back. I know CJ's put up some crazy weeks, but give me Matt Stafford against the Giants, 18th ranked passing defense. Um, and I think besides that, if you're in your fantasy championship, you pretty much have what you have, but it's those few like defense kicker and then maybe a quarterback position that you got to decide on away from winning it. I don't know what other podcasts are telling you to stream a kicker that's currently on a practice squad for a Thursday night game. I mean, that's some, that's some deep cut analysis right there. Kurt. Dude, I think that's um, I'm telling listen. you we're, we're diving into every aspect of how weird this stuff can get. And again, you're talking to a guy that like, I will pick people up just so other people can't pick them up. Like I am the biggest fantasy football gatekeeper and it's worked up until this point, but yeah, man, like kickers and defenses, no lie. I've they're, They've been the only reason why I'm in the championship. I've won my last few weeks, besides 
last week, my the other guy I played it against shit the bed. But like I've won by two points, three points, five points, six. Like it's been really close down the stretch, and I needed all of these games. And it all came down to me being willing to bench the 49ers defense for like a Packers defense with a good matchup. And like those things matter. So I don't know. I think you have to go with your gut on kickers and defenses. And those are the two for me that are the most volatile in my league. What is your opinion of kickers being only luck and that they should not even be included in fantasy football league rules? It's not only luck. There's some luck to it, just like anything, but get a good, you don't even need a good kicker. You need a kicker with a good offense. That's all it is. Like most kickers in the league will hit most of their field goals. Piggyback it with a good offense, like Jason Sanders or whatever for the uh, for the Dolphins. Like he's been on my roster and in my lineup a few weeks, even though I have Justin Tucker. And if I think that the Dolphins have a more favorable matchup on offense, I'll throw him in. Like you have to be, I think in fantasy football, you have to be willing to die and let your ego go to the wayside by just starting people because of their names. Like I've had Justin Tucker on my bench. And I have no shame in it. I've had the 49ers defense on my bench, and I have no shame in it. I've drafted both of those those guys. And like matchup to matchup, week to week, I think it's the NFL. Anything can happen, but you got to play your hunch of like, who's going to be scoring a lot of points this week? Let me go grab their kicker if he's available. Of course. Well, this is when football gets good. The implications for fans, the implications for teams, we have to soak it in while we can because – we only have here. a couple weeks left of this regular season. We are here, man. I'm excited. This was a fun episode. I love being able to like dive in and recap and set the stage. And now we just we wait and see. Got to see what happens this week. But thanks for, for chopping it up, Tyler. Thanks for everybody that listened to this whole episode. Man, I've been enjoying it a lot. And I'm excited to see what happens. Another wild weekend of football on the way. See you guys. 